because it really, you got to be some kind of woman to really have to love your sister and, and really want to love her and not compete and all that. And I can't wait, can't wait for our sister Melody to share on Sisterhood because she is going to bring it. Okay, so I want to start out by sharing a little, a little bit about my redemption story. And when Erica told me what the topic and sort of the theme was, for the conference, I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe nobody thought about this before. This is, this is amazing. I'm telling you with experience as a therapist now that most of my clients, they don't have mental health disorders. What they have are insecurities. And the insecurities are what's bringing about the panic attacks or the anxiety attacks. So when she told me, hey, um, you know, I just really got this I feel like it needs to be about the secure one. I was like, oh my, yes. Yes, because you are looking at somebody who has fought incredibly hard to walk securely in the Lord. To be able to believe and fight for what God says about me and believe it in this book. It's not just know about it. It's actually say, Lord, how do I get what is up here in my heart? And so I pray that throughout this conference and throughout this weekend, that there's a transference yes. from up here to in here, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So I'm a, I'm a Chi-Town girl. <laughs> yes, born and raised. Um, and so I was born to a Mexican father and a Puerto Rican mother. I'm not sure how that happened. That's probably why it didn't work out. Okay. Oil and vinegar. Oil and vinegar, I promise. Okay. And so very early on, I discovered that my father was extremely mean. I am a first generation, uh, I guess, Mexican. My father was an immigrant. And so he had these very strange ideologies about women. Um, I guess Mexicans call it machismo. Yes. And so he had these very traditional views of women. And so my, my earliest memories really are of my father being extremely controlling <coughs> and abusive. And I remember fearing him. And I don't mean a fear like, you know, what the Bible says that we should fear the Lord, right? And that's really synonymous to a reverence for the Lord, a deep respect for the Lord. But the fear that I had towards my father was a traumatic stress fear. Oh. If I would hear his the keys at the door, I would have a startled response. And a lot of that is really indicative of PTSD, now that I know better. Um, and Or if I heard his alarm, his car alarm, uh, on the street, I knew I had so many seconds that we needed to get ourselves together, my mother and I, and we had to look busy to because she had to be... Uh, cooking or cleaning, and I had to be studying. And so it was a very controlled, manipulated environment, right from, right from the beginning, from what I can remember. Uh, I, another early memory I have is being in, I think it was probably first grade, and my mom having to put makeup on my eye because I had a black eye. And I'm not sure what you do as a child, really, that was so wrong that you deserve a black eye. But I do remember them coaching me and saying, hey, if any of the teachers ask, you tell them you fell down the stairs. 
And so immediately there was this, you have to live this double life. Nobody can know about what's really going on at home. And so I'm already starting to see some tears um, and, so, and, and praise the Lord for that. But, I, but as a therapist, I have to tell you, if at any point my story begins to bring about any flashbacks, if you start feeling um, your heart racing or anything like that, the last thing that I want to do is re-traumatize you. And so you just get up really quickly, you take a breath, go outside, and make sure that you relax your body. Because my story does get very intense. Okay? Um, otherwise, you could just tell your sister, hey, could you pray for me? And make sure you take a deep breath and you calm down. Amen? Amen. Okay. And so um, immediately there, there was that double life. I need to... I need to keep this a secret. This is a secret, and it's shameful. Um, and I remember, you know, as a little girl, you're like, okay, sure. I go to school, and I'm not telling anybody, but there was that one little girl that was my friend, so I told her, and that friend told the teacher. And then when my mom picked me up, the teacher was like, hey, so, um, you know, she actually said that, you know, it was your husband who hit her, and I heard my mother lie. And I believe that was the first time I lost respect for my mother. Knowing that she had covered up um, and had the chance really to say something and she didn't do anything about it. And so, and, and, and then my mother went home and actually ended up telling uh, my father, which meant that I got beat again. And so I lived a very sheltered life. I couldn't, we couldn't cut our hair. It had to be the length that he wanted it to be. I couldn't listen to the music that I wanted to listen to. I, I'm, I feel sometimes like I, I'm part, I was part of this like weird TV sh reality TV show or something. Sometimes when I think back to my story, God has so healed me and brought me so far from that that re when I have to sort of prepare for a message, I can't believe this happened to me. But I was so far removed from reality because he had this deep-seated need for control. Um, and so, very abusive. I, I grew up seeing my father beat my mother, sometimes drawing blood. Um, same with me, especially when it came to the area of studying and, and math. He had this... Knack. He wanted me to be a genius. Very strange. And, and very early on, I also remember that my father didn't, didn't really like women. I grew up with him hear, hearing him say to my mother, you typical Puerto Rican. <laughs> and I also remember him saying that being a woman was weak. And so immediately the foundation of my identity was being formed by what he was saying to me. That number one Puerto Ricans were um, were ignorant, they were not classy, and that being a woman was weak. He also went as far as to control the toys that I played with. Um, he, he must have believed in the stereotype. And it went as far as if there was one Christmas, I, I actually remember that I got a, I received a dollhouse, and it was beautiful. It was about yay high. And with those dollhouses, it came with stickers so that you could sort of um, create the, the rooms. And, and I couldn't wait to do that the next morning. But by the next morning, the dollhouse was gone. 
I also remember receiving a glass tea set, and I loved it so much that I remember hiding it in my closet. And that also was taken from me. He didn't want me to dress in girls. See, my father desperately wanted his first child to be a boy, and I wasn't. So he made me into one. Um, the only toys that I was permitted to play with were trucks, uh, no Barbie dolls whatsoever, trucks, Transformers, and G.I. Joes. And you know, as a little girl, I, I didn't really mind it. I, I understood that he didn't want me to play with those things, and I just sort of obeyed. I, I didn't understand the significance of it. Uh, because I actually liked playing with trucks. I was kind of a tomboy. So it, it fit, and it wasn't as harmful as I look back on it now. But as you can see, all of this is forming my identity, and it's going to follow me into adulthood. Um, and so very scary man. My father was a very scary man. There was no pleasing him. One night, it was raining and thundering outside. And my father knew that I feared, I feared the sound of thunder. It was very scary. And he walked into my room at night, and he said, I know that you're scared. I'm just going to, you know, be with you here. And I, I remember thinking to myself, that's so nice of him. Because my father rarely did anything kind. And yet, this still ended up being something out of his selfish ambition. And so that night changed everything. My father was no longer just an abuser, a controller, a manipulator. He began to sexually abuse me and molested me for 10 years. Um, what that's called in, in the psychological community is called grooming. And that's when you take advantage of a child and the authority, that, the authority position that you have in their life. Um, and so in essence, what I became to my father was a surrogate wife. I don't know, but maybe he was unhappy with his marriage. I don't know, and I don't really care to justify his sin against me. But I was the one who ended up going to parties with him, and uh, I would, and before it was just very violent and mean, but now he was, a, he was jealous. He was jealous of my time, and he was jealous of my body, and it was all very confusing to me. The first man in my life betrayed me. Betrayed me to my very core. And so for years, I cannot explain to you the silent suffering that I had to endure. The silent suffering, the psychological suffering that I had to endure living in that home. When my father would beat me, my mother had learned to really just either walk in denial or disassociate, which I'll explain about in a little bit. But she would just be watching novelas. She would just be watching soap operas while I was screaming and being beaten. And in the mornings, my father would leave my bedroom in underwear. It was very clear what was happening to me. It was very clear what was happening to me. But nobody was there to save me. 
And I, as I get older and I look back in retrospect, I am just like, wow, does the enemy really blind people? And so one day when I was 16 years old, um, I believe I was maybe a junior in high school. That sounds about right. Um, I started the life of God. It's funny how those things happen. But there was this guy, and his name was Carmen. I don't know what happened there. They're very, they're very confusing things that in my story sometimes, but I like the guy named Carmen, okay? And I promise he was cute, guys, okay, besides the name. And he was in Jerome to see, and so was I. I mean, it just made sense. I was living in somewhat of a military environment already. Uh, I flourished in that military environment. And so I meet Carmen. Carmen's also in JRTC. And he's just like, hey, do you want to go out with me? And I was like, sure. And the extent really of that relationship was, you call me at this time. These are the hours of operation, right? Because it doesn't matter how strict your parents are. Obviously, my father was very extremely strict and yet I still found a way around him. And so I was very clear with Carmen. I said, here, these are the hours of operation in which you can call me. I am closed otherwise. And what do you think he did? Why can't you be sneaky with me? Right? And so he calls outside. He calls at a time in which I knew my father would be home. And the phone rings, and back in those days, see, we had the caller ID. And the caller ID was like this separate contraption for all you youngins here, okay? It wasn't a part of the phone. It was like something you had to buy, and you had to plug it into the phone, okay? And so the caller ID, and so his number comes up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, okay, just that feeling where you're just, your heart, your stomach is like, you know what I'm saying? It's just yes. like, you feel like you're gonna get sick. Yeah. And so my, I hear my father answer the phone and he clicks on him, he hangs up. And so I'm like, got away with that one. But I didn't know that my father was FBI. And so what my father did was he reversed, looked up that number and must have called the number back when I was at school. And so the next day when I came home, he said, you know, we're going to go see a client. I said, okay, that's pretty normal. Uh, my father always wanted every inkling of my time. And so we're on our way. And for all you Chicagoans, I lived over by Clark and Montrose. And so we're very, we were very far north. And so we start heading west. And he starts talking a little crazy. He says, no, I, I asked you to never lie to me. I told you if you lied to me, I would find out. And my heart is pounding at this point. I'm like, uh-oh, something happened. And he says, you know that number that called the other day? I called it back. And we're go I have the address, and we're going there right now. You all, I wanted to jump out of that car. I was so scared. I was like, oh, man, this is not good. 
And so he's just really calm. It really was just like the calm before the storm. He is just like, he is, he is ready. So we get to this house. This was the longest drive of my life. This was Clark and Montrose is where we lived. He lived on Central and Montrose. Okay? So that was a long way. And so we, we show up to this guy's house that I've never even been to. My father is banging on the door. His father is like Paul Bunyan, okay? <laughs> Just huge guy. My father was not even phased by it. He just walks right into that house, and he's just like, your son is doing such and such with my daughter. And he was convinced in his mind that we were having sex. He was absolutely convinced. And so all I remember is this is very loud shouting. I'm sort of just by the door awkwardly. I don't, I don't know what to do. And the father is saying, listen, if you continue yelling and going on this way, I'm going to have to call the police. My father does not care. And then the father asks for Carmen. The mom goes and gets Carmen. As soon as Carmen walks into the room, it must have elicited some type of extreme jealousy for my father to see him because my father turned around and backhanded me so hard that I just remember looking down and blood was coming out of my nose and blood was coming out of my lip. And I just remember my hair was just draping over me and I am completely humiliated. Completely humiliated. And so I can't really remember much of what happened. I just remember we exit the house and my father and I go, we get back into the truck. And from Clark and Montrose, or from Central and Montrose to Clark and Montrose, my father beat me so bad that he almost killed me. He almost killed me in that truck. He was using my hair as a way to maneuver me. And by the time that I got home, half the hair in my head was pulled out. It was pulled completely out. I was irrecognizable by the time I got home. I remember praying and hoping that somebody on the street would see my face because I was trying to be so pressed up against the window that I was hoping. I remember thinking if I just open the door and fall into the street, at least this would end it. But I didn't. In the back of my mind, I, I had a baby sister, and I thought, if I leave, maybe he'll do this to her. And I couldn't live with myself if I did that. And so I stuck it through. And when I get home, and my face was so swollen, I was beaten very badly. And the next day, I had ROTC. And you have to sort of wear your hair above the collar in your uniform. Had no idea why. I went to school the next day, or why I was allowed to, whatever the case is, it's all God sovereignly planning that out. And so I, I get to school, and my friends are like, what happened to you? I mean, it must have looked like I got into a car crash or something. And again, because I was really just psychologically brainwashed at this point, I'm still covering up. Well, you know, all the threats growing up, you believe them. My yes. father called me stupid my whole life that I thought I was stupid. He said, if you ever tell anybody about what's happening, I'm going to lose my business. And my father was so smart. He 
he um, created a construction business and he worked for some of the wealthiest homes in Chicago. And I knew how hard he had worked and he used that against me. He exploited my trust. And he said, if, and the family will be broken apart and it will be your fault. And when you hear that long enough, you believe it. You're blinded by the truth. And so I'm still making up lies for him. But oddly enough, a pastor's daughter, I'll always remember her, a pastor's daughter didn't believe my lie. And she went and she told the guidance counselor, maybe for, your, for you Lanites, his name was Chris Windorf. And Chris Windorf was very, he was, he was key in my life. And when they, when I got called out of my classroom, DCFS was there ready. Oh, and they were taking pictures of my face, Polaroids and everything. The police were there. This was a big deal. And they saw what he had did to me. And they took me away from my home for about two weeks. And my father was sort of on this probationary period. And he said, she can go back home if you promise not to hit her again. And so I go back home, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe this was a wake-up call for him. Maybe he really just, he needed to get shaken up a bit for him to know that there is some form of justice, and he can't get away with it. And I remember that weekend, there was a softball meet, because I love playing softball. And I was in the softball team, and there was going to be a softball sleepover. And I never got to participate in these things. I missed out on sleepovers, on birthday parties. I never really was able to even have friends. Talk about an identity crisis, and then showing up to a 4,000-body uh, student count at Lane and trying to figure out where you fit in. When I don't even know what kind of music I like. And so uh, I return, I, I ask permission to go to this softball sleepover, and guess what? He gives me permission. I'm like, wow, things are really changing. This, he really needed this, to know that somebody is watching him. And so I go, I get dropped off at this sleepover. I'm still in disbelief that I'm even at the sleepover. But about midway into the sleepover, number one, I figure out why my father wanted to shelter me and not go to things because these girls were acting a straight up fool and went into their parents' liquor cabinet and there was all sorts of crying and slobbering and all kinds of, okay, and I'm like, oh, this is what I was missing out on. But that's besides the point. Unreal. And so, at 2 a.m., my father starts to call this woman's house, the parents. And he's saying, no, she needs to come home right now. And when, I, when he comes to pick me up, he is convinced that I was having sex with this girl's brother who lived there. Just un unreal. I, I can't even try to understand his mindset. All I know is that there was some extreme insecurity and jealousy that he was dealing with. And he picked me up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And he was so convinced that I was doing something that he was trying to hold his hands behind his back to try not to hit me. That's how used to, he was, that's how used to 
um, how used to he was, uh, I can't even say this right. That's how used to hitting me, accustomed he was to hitting me and just being able to freely abuse me and lay a hand on me and take out his anger on me. So he kicked me. And so, see, I just got a little bit of courage now, though. I got a little bit of courage because I feel somebody has been listening to me. Somebody is on my side. And so I'll always remember my DCFS investigators and this, this one, Richard Echevarria. He was so nice to me. He was so nice to me. And he would meet up with me. And I told him, he's like, well, has he hit you? I was like, well, he did. And I told him the whole scenario, not understanding that it sounded, from an outsider's perspective, kind of strange. And they said, you know what? We think something else is going on here. We think something else is going on here. But we can't do anything about it unless you tell us. And it was the moment of truth, y'all. Everything inside of me was saying, don't say anything. Don't say, you stick up for him. Don't let them find out. Don't let them find out. And I said, yes, my father has been sexually molesting me. And that changed everything. Immediately, they phone called my mom. They let them know about the new charges uh, that were um, that were against him. And this man emptied out all of our all of our money from all of our bank accounts, took all our jewelry, and left to Mexico and never came back that night. He left and never came back. And because he never allowed my mother to work, we were completely destitute. We later even found out that he had removed my mother's name from the deed of the house, so she couldn't even sell the house. We were so poor that I had to take my little sister to Butera and steal food and put food into, inside of her jacket just so we could eat, because my, my mother was so depressed. When I would wake up, she would be sleeping on the couch, and when I came home from school, she was still sleeping on that couch. And so then I had to become the man of the house. I didn't, I wasn't even afforded the chance to mourn. I wasn't even afforded the chance to go get counseling. There's no counseling. There's a reason that I'm a counselor today. And so now I had to stand up. And so here I am 16. I think I, I remember having to get a worker's permit is what I remember. And I just started working across the street at the Dunkin' Donuts. And we, and I worked until my mom could figure something out. My aunts know where to be found. They were all my mother's sister. I just remembered my one particular aunt. She said, why did you lie about your father? You just didn't like that he hit you all the time. That was the response from my family. They didn't even believe me. My mother, till this day, has not had a conversation with me about what happened. Till this day. And so I couldn't take it anymore. My best friend and I said we're leaving. We signed up for the United States Marine Corps. And at this point, I'm so jacked up. Grades, forget about it. Goals, academics, I'm just trying to get through life right now. 
I started smoking, drinking, I was popping acid, taking ecstasy, and smoking weed all the time. Back in our day, we called them daytimes. You would skip school, and you'd go to these parties and just, let's just find out how many 40s we can drink. And that's how my generation coped. Today's generation, let's take blades to our thighs and our wrists yeah. and let's just self-harm. I didn't, I, I never even heard about that until we were doing youth ministry. Our generation, we coped by getting high. And there was a lot of teens that were coping. A lot of teens. You didn't have to go far to find a teenager that was trying to cope and just numb yourself from life. And so I'm so jacked up that I almost don't even graduate high school. And, and I made it somehow as this physics teacher. Oh, he was so weird. And I said, listen, I need, you gave me an F. I need to turn this at least into a D, okay? Because I'm going to the Marine Corps and I need to graduate to leave with my best friend. And he was so strange. He, he, was, he had a toupee and he had mirrors all over the place. He'd always be trying to like, check out his toupee. But that's besides the point. Because this man actually ended up being the best high school teacher, okay? Um, because I said, listen, so here's the deal, okay? I'm like trying to strike up a deal with him. And I'm like, if you give me this D, I'm going to try my best. And he believed me. He believed me. He gave me the D, and I started going to tutoring every week. And I turned, y'all, I turned that D into a B. I turned that D into a B. And at the end of the year, I, I stole a crystal apple, okay? You know, I wasn't saved, so. I stole a crystal apple and specifically for this teacher. And I brought it to him in a little bag. And I gave it to him. And, I, and when I gave it to him, he said, he was, so, he was just so strange. And I gave it to him, and he said, and he was just like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and, 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 I, and there was a little note, and I just thanked him for believing me. I thanked him for believing me, and he said, I'll never regret the decision I made turning that F into a D. Because I really, and it was such a sweet moment for me, and I desperately needed somebody, somebody to believe in me. And so I was off. I left with my best friend. We did. We went through the buddy program, and we went to uh, Paris Island, North Carolina, and I became a United States Marine. It was crazy, crazy, strenuous. It was strict, but I loved it because I already came up in that environment, and I already knew how to be obedient. And so um, the Marine Corps was awesome. I excelled. Uh, I. All in all the wrong ways. I was meritoriously promoted three times. I was the youngest female sergeant in my command. And I was probably the best in the region as far as physical fitness was concerned. And so I'm trying to build this strong identity so desperately because I was so manipulated and taken control of all the time and, and weak that I desperately wanted to build an identity and I wanted to be Angelina Jolie. <laughs> I was like, y'all don't mess with Angelina Jolie. I'm gonna be just like her. Because I really, I needed to feel strong and regain a sense of who I was. 
but really the, all that the Marine Corps did was reinforce the, negati the negativity in my life, which was violence mm -hmm. and aggression. They celebrated coming up in the Marine Corps. They said, oh, femininity, you better get that out the window because you won't get no respect in the United States Marine Corps with that. You, if your voice yeah. sounded a, just a little bit feminine, no, you better change it and put some depth into it, baby. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, these men are not going to respect you. And so all it did was reinforce the same values and ideologies that my father believed in. There was nothing. I didn't have to believe anything different. All the lies were reinforced by the Marine Corps. And so I get I, I, on my way out of the Marine Corps. I meet this guy. I have to move forward a little bit quicker because my time is escaping me. Um, and I meet this guy. He ends up being very similar to my father when he got back from deployment and he thought that he could start getting abusive with me again. And so I couldn't believe I was in that place again. My term ends in the Marine Corps. My best friend had got raped in the Marine Corps during a, a, um, a ball, a Marine Corps ball. And so we leave the Marine Corps completely jacked up back to Chicago. We move in together. And we just start going to Milwaukee and Damon, which is like a bar, a bunch of bars and lounges. And we just start going to drink, and it wasn't for social reasons. It was, again, this time it was to cope. And now we became full-on alcoholics. We're coming home 5 a.m., and I don't even know what's going on. I'm just trying to numb the depression that's going on inside of me. And so one night, I remember I drank so much that there was... I remember crying so deeply that when I woke up, I had a hernia in my stomach. That's how hard I cried. Because no amount of success could remedy the darkness, the depression, the sorrow, the pain that was going on inside. No amount of success. You guys, my dreams to become an FBI agent were, were, they were coming to realization. I was being interviewed by the CIA. I was currently working for the Department of Defense. I had a secret clearance in all, you know, in everybody's sort of outside perspective of me. I am successful. I'm a girl who's making it out of the hood and making something of herself. But really, I was just dying inside. And so there I am on this hospital bed. Um, a couple of my friends next to me, and they're saying, you know, well, it's a good thing we don't have to um, do any surgery. We're just going to pop that hernia back in. And so I promise y'all it wasn't the drugs. But after that surgery, God began to speak to me. God chose the lowest of the low, the moment when I was in a deep, the deepest, darkest pit of my life, where I had no choice but to look up. And guess who was there? Jesus. And so God began to speak to me. He said, seek me. And John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And God began to draw me unto himself. And so for a year, you know, I mean, what does every Hispanic do? You go to Catholic mass. And so I go, I'm like, okay, I need to seek God. I, I need to find him. And so I'm like, okay, let me go to Catholic mass. And so I show up, and I'm like, okay, okay. just going to go ahead and go pee here. Oh, kneel? Okay, let me kneel now. And so I remember look, looking at my sister, 
And I, re I remember thinking, are you learning anything? I wasn't learning anything. Some chick I was working with at um, the Department of Defense was a Mormon, and she was like, oh, come to Mormon Temple with me. I'm like, okay, because if I was gonna be a Catholic, I was gonna be the best Catholic you ever saw. And if I was gonna be a Mormon, I was gonna wear those skirts, y'all, and I was gonna be doing it big for Jesus, but I was gonna give me some God, okay? And so I'm doing this simultaneously, going back and forth. I'm going to Mormon Temple one Sunday, and I'm going to Catholic Mass the other Sunday, and my friends are like, when are you going to choose one? I'm like, I don't know. I just don't feel like I found the one yet. Okay, and so, um, okay, and so I'm doing that. I'm doing that, and I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing it. And so I run into a friend at the mall, and I said, you should come to my church. I'm going to 16 others. Why not? <laughs> so I head over to this friend's church out in Schaumburg, and I remember thinking on the way there, what, I'm doing all of this, and what if God is not even real? Wow. Just wasting my time. Wow. I don't know nothing about God, y'all. All I know is Jesus and Mary and a rosary or something like that. And so I get to this church, and I'm like, what is this circus? There are people just jumping all over the place, and they're like, yay! Because y'all worship in a, in a typical Catholic mass is very low-key. And the Mormons, you know, they're just, they're liturgical, and, you know, they got the hymn book and stuff like that. And I didn't know about all the, the weird doctrine that they believe, the promise, okay? And so, um, and so when I get there, these people are OC. They're just out of control, worshiping God. And I'm like, what is this freak show? Can I be real? That is what I was thinking. Can't remember one thing the pastor preached. All I know is some woman approached me afterwards, and she's like, hi. And I'm like, hi. And she's like, and it started getting weird, y'all. <laughs> Started getting weird. I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> and she's looking at me, and she's just like, I could just feel your pain. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she starts praying for me, and she begins to say, God is going to heal you. You're gonna, God's going to heal you. He's going to have you healing many through your story. Wow. And he says, and he wants you to know this is the way. Wow. Ooh, he wants you to know this is the way. Oh, and he want, he knows that you question his existence. Wow. And he wants you to know that he does exist and he is real. Amen. And so I do what any logical person would do. And I turn around and I look at my friend. I'm like, how dare you tell her my business? Right. <laughs> I left that place so upset. I was like, I cannot believe they're trying to pull a fast one on me. And he's like, no, that woman, she's regarded as, such and such as a prophet or something like that. And I'm like, is this the medieval times? <laughs> what do you mean? I don't think so. And so, you know, and so I'm just like, what just happened to me right now? I'm driving home and I went, and then it dawned on me and I said, wait a second. I thought that. And only God could be omniscient. Only God is all knowing. I knew that much. And so that very night, my sister comes to me. She says, hey, there's this youth group called Uprise that my friend from Kelvin Park, you know, 
she invited me to, maybe we should go. I said, why not? Another church. <laughs> this one just happened to be around the corner, though. And so, you know, here I am. I even went to Utah and lived with the Mormon family for a little bit. Wow. I, so many stories. And so, um, so here, you know, I'm going to Utah and back to end up at this church around the corner. Oh, my God. And so we get to this church, and I remember just feeling like, it was January 2007, and I remember him saying, if you want to live the rest of this year out for Jesus, raise your hand. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, I do want to live. <laughs> but then I was like, wait a second now. There's like only five other people that want to live this year. I'm like, get it together, you guys. We're in church. <laughs> right? Because I didn't know it was a set. It was a setup. He's been, he's like, all right, everybody who has their hand raised, I just want to invite you to come on up. And I'm like, what? Oh, no. But my sister, y'all, thank God for sisterhood. Whether biological or not, my sister looks up at me. She's like, I'll go with you. We, all, we need that sister. It's going to come with you so you can get some Jesus, right? And so I show up to that altar, and I just, all the memories of that. Um, now this pastor, Pastor Daniel, is actually my husband's uncle. And so um, I'm looking up at him, and, and I just remember most of my memories are cloudy because of how much I was crying. I don't know if many of you know the book Pilgrim's Progress or, or have seen the movie, but he depicts this man named Christian. And Christian, once he, uh, once he realizes that he has broken God's commands, these heaps of sacks are on his back. And I remember that when I walked up to that altar, I felt the weight of my sin on me. It was so heavy. And I heard the gospel full and clear for the first time. I never heard it at the, at the Catholic Mass. I never heard it at the Mormon temple. I don't even remember hearing it at the other church. But I remember hearing the gospel full and clear for the first time. And what he was saying was that if I believe on Jesus, if I believe that he, was, that he died with my sins, that he was buried and he was resurrected, right, DVR, that I would be forgiven of my sins. And I don't completely understand the eternal implications of all of that. I don't understand it. I just, I, I'm feeling it. And it felt like I was in this courtroom. And I had been summoned. And the judge is before me. And he's citing out all of the charges against me. And I hear guilty. And I know that I am guilty. But then some random man comes into the courtroom Somebody that I hardly knew, a man that I never loved, a man that I never acknowledged, walked into that courtroom and said, I'll do her time. I'll pay her fine. God is good. I'll do her time and I'll pay her fine. Somebody say propitiation. Propitiation. Propitiation is this lofty theological word. 
that means that Jesus became a substitute for you and I. He became a substitute for you and I, meaning that he paid the sin price for our sin. And because of that price that he paid, the gavel goes down. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So not only did he pay for my sin in that moment, but he experienced the wrath that I was supposed to experience. In that moment when he walked into that courtroom. And what do you think that God was saying to me, to you, through propitiation? Because God doesn't do something without a reason. So what do you think God was saying to you through propitiation? And when as I thought about this, I thought about my husband's parents, humble people. They don't have many means. But they believed in my husband's gift of music so much that they would not pay their mortgage payments. They wouldn't pay their mortgage payments so that they could save up for his equipment to build him a studio in the basement. And the outsider's perspective would be, how are you responsible? How could you, how could you not pay your mortgage payments. You know, you should teach your son maybe to save up a little or something. But when I hear that, I hear they believed in him so much, they loved him so much that they wanted to make a way for him. They wanted to make a way for him. And through propitiation, God is saying, I need to make a way for you. I need to make a way for you to come back and be reconciled to the Father. But sometimes we get so numb and we have we grow calluses to this. It just becomes some doctrine that we believe. My father-in-law also has this other story. He used to live in Puerto Rico for a little bit. And he used his father's car to go up some mountain, go do something that weird Puerto Rican people do. <laughs> and he accidentally runs into another car. And then he tries to cover it up and drives really quickly right back home and covers up the car with a tarp. But we're talking small town Puerto Rico, okay? And so everybody knew whose car that was and everybody knew whose son that was. And so do you know what his father had to end up doing? Paying for that. He had to pay for that damage. And that is exactly what God did through propitiation. He knew that we had messed up. And like any good father, when children, when your children sin, you're going to make a way and, re and, and make a way and pay for that person's damage. You're going to pay for that person's mess. 
so God made a way and paid for our mess through his son Jesus. We can't let this slip by, ladies. He made a way through his son Jesus. And so here we are. Now, I don't care who you are. I don't care how awesome your testimony is. I don't care how righteous you think you are. I don't care how disciplined you think you are. I don't care how holy and dignified you think you are. Every single last one of you here has had to be in that courtroom and you were sitting there guilty. You may not have the distinct memory like I do, but you were just as guilty and you were just in need of his mercy and you were just in need of his grace. And so the gavel goes down. And do you know what that judge said? Justified. She has now been made righteous. There's so much more to the gospel message. It's not just forgiveness, y'all. Yes, amen, we've been forgiven. But now you actually have become the righteousness of God. And when you, when you catch the revelation and the, the eternal significance of this, your life will be forever changed. Forever changed. Romans 5, 18, 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. To be justified means that now you are legally right before God. You have been forgiven. And when God looks upon you, he says, not guilty. I see a robe of righteousness on her. But you know, what do you think God is saying to you through justification? God is saying, I am fully pleased with you, daughter. I am fully pleased with you. I am fully pleased. There's, I have accepted you. You don't have to meet any particular standard now. I have justified you. You have now been made righteous. So any other standard outside of God's word that you make up, because that's what we do. See, I've had an approval addiction. I know what it is to stand before man and feel inferior and feel insecure. But when you catch this revelation and you know that God is... 100% pleased with you and has forgiven your past, present, and future sins. You could stand up a little bit more dignified knowing that you are a child of God. And you are 100% accepted. And you are fully pleasing to God. Hear me, oh daughter. For you who question, maybe I don't dress up good enough. Well, I don't, I don't sound 
as holy, or I don't know as much Christianese words as this woman at church. That is a lie from God because God has justified you and you are fully pleasing unto him. Believe it. I think we miss sometimes the eternal significance of the price that was not only paid, but the way that was paid. There was a price that was paid, and a, there is a way that was paid. Can we stand up on our feet tonight, ladies? And can I have the can I have the piano player up here? <coughs> and so a lot a lot of times people ask me, how is it that you have forgiven your father? How is it that you have forgiven your mother? You know, ladies, the first person actually that I had to forgive was not my father, oddly enough. The first person that I had to forgive was my mother. Because I could not understand how is it that a woman could watch her child, a little girl, get so badly beaten and abused, hear her screams, and there not be a call to action. But the secret to being forgiven and to being able to forgive was that once that you once you realized how desperately in need of God's forgiveness you were, how guilty you were of breaking God's commands. I was a thief, a liar, a drunkard. And when you realize how much you've been forgiven, then you can forgive much. Who are we to withhold forgiveness? When God died for you while you were yet sinners, it's scandalous. God died for you while you were yet a sinner. There was this woman the Bible says there was this woman who crashed a party. And she came with her hair down and she had this alabaster jar. And it was full of perfume. And the men at the table were like, well, if this guy was a prophet, he would know what kind of manner of woman this was. And Jesus, of course, knowing said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much can we love Jesus tonight yes. if you've been for, I'm only talking to those who've been forgiven much in here where would you be without him where would you be without Jesus if he had not forgiven you 
Come on, let's worship him tonight. Close your eyes. Let's worship him tonight.